This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 153. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide into worlds of fantasy and wonder. You can find more of my stuff at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you fresh installments of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So, let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 11 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. No recap this week, folks. We're getting straight to the story. Here's Chapter 11. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 11 Kate arrived at the Grenning Apartments in the early afternoon. It was in one of the worst parts of the street that people still actually lived in. Kate could tell as soon as she saw the building that it would never pass a safety inspection, if anyone bothered to do one. Still, the residents had done their best, keeping their stairs and windowsills clean and planting little gardens in the planter boxes out front. Kate admired their resolve, maintaining their little patch of civilization as best they could. Lyle answered the door of his apartment promptly. The building was crushingly hot inside, and the little rat man was wearing nothing but his fur and a pair of gym shorts. Hey, Lyle, Kate said. Miss Kitridge? Lyle bowed deeply. Thank you for coming, ma'am. Let me get the key. I'll just be a second. He ducked out of view. Kate heard his claws clicking on the linoleum floor and a drawer opening and closing. He returned with the key in hand and beckoned Kate across the hall. I'm not allowed to go in unless you invite me, Kate told him. P.I.s are like vampires that way. Lyle chuckled nervously. (laughs) Okay. When you go in, just stand out of the way and let me work, Kate continued. If there's anything you can do to help, I'll tell you, but otherwise, stay quiet. I understand, Lyle said. Good. Go ahead and open it up. Lyle did so, and they went inside together. Kate surveyed the room, noting the comfortable, homey furnishings, the clean but threadbare carpets, the orderly kitchen with its pots and pans hanging from racks over the counter. She eyed the grocery bags sitting next to the stove. "'Have you touched anything in here since she disappeared?' Kate asked. Lyle swallowed nervously. "'I, um, put the milk and cheese and stuff in the refrigerator. I didn't want it to go bad.' Kate nodded. She couldn't blame him for that. And if Lyle was a regular visitor to Mrs. Roberts' apartment, his hairs and fingerprints would be in the room anyway. "'All right.' Stay here, I'm going to take a look around. Lyle nodded and leaned back against the wall by the door. 
Kate set down her bag, pulled on a pair of nitrile gloves, and got to work. The apartment showed no signs of a struggle. Nothing had been knocked over, broken, or otherwise disturbed. The woman's keys and purse were on the counter, though, which supported Lyle's belief that she hadn't left of her own free will. Kate went into the bathroom, which was filled with the scent of potpourri and one of those drop-in toilet cleaners. The medicine cabinet had half a dozen prescription bottles of different kinds. Kate didn't recognize most of them, but she knew one was a powerful painkiller that could fetch seven or eight marks per pill on the black market. Judging from the size of the bottle, Mrs. Roberts appeared to be on a monthly prescription for chronic pain. That ruled out robbery as a motive— There was no way a street gang would have missed such an easy source of cash. Kate went back for her bag, took out her fingerprint dusting kit, then paused. She turned to Lyle. Is Mrs. Roberts cursed? Yes, ma'am, Lyle said. She's a cat. Kate pictured the hands of cat theriomorphs she had known. She has pads on her fingers, right? Lyle nodded. Good, then this might work. Kate went back to the bathroom and dusted for prints. Mrs. Roberts' cleanliness was actually an advantage here, because there weren't layers and layers of overlapping prints to confuse the issue. A cat's pads weren't ridged in the same way as a human's fingerprints, but they did have a characteristic pattern of cracks and creases that could be analyzed in much the same way. Kate lifted clear impressions from the door handle and the shower glass, which she taped onto index cards and placed in zip-top bags. She also collected hair from the woman's hairbrush. Kate left the fingerprint powder in place and returned to the main room. Did Mrs. Roberts have a mobile phone? Lyle frowned. I think so. The apartments don't have phone lines, so I guess she must have. Kate opened the woman's purse and peeked inside. Aha! She pulled out a simple black candy bar phone the sort that had no special features and was nearly indestructible. Kate was not surprised to find that it didn't have a lock code. She paged through menus until she found the call history. There were two missed calls from someone named Eloise, but nothing else in the last two days. Kate copied down the number for Eloise and put the phone back in the purse. Where did you last see Mrs. Roberts? Was she here in the apartment? No, ma'am. She was out front watering the plants— I went inside, took a shower, read for a while, and when I came back out, she was gone. He pointed at a watering can in the corner by the door. She even left her watering can in the street. Kate frowned. All right, let's go out front and see if we can figure out what happened. She grabbed the watering can and her bag and went back out to the front of the building. She set the can on a patch of reasonably clean pavement then tied a few strands of Mrs. Roberts's hair to the handle. Then Kate took out her magnetic chalk and drew a circle on the pavement around the watering can. A ring of arcane glyphs went around the circle, with a larger circle around that. She placed five white candles at equidistant points around the larger circle, then lit them with a cigar torch. Kate knelt on the ground and drew a smaller circle around herself, then drew additional signs to connect her circle to the larger one that contained her focusing objects. She placed her pocket mirror on the pavement in front of her, pointing its reflective surface at the air above the watering can. Lastly, she drew out her arthana, raising the dagger in front of her eyes. 
She drew up the mana from inside her, channeling it into the cutting edge of the blade, then moved the dagger in a circle, like she was cutting a hole in the air. Al santisistero, she said, and touched the tip of her dagger to the edge of the circle. The magic of the spell flared to life, and images appeared in the imaginary portal Kate had created, projected from the little pocket mirror. Ordinarily, the augury spell would begin with the earliest memories attached to a place, but in the interest of time, Kate had tried an experiment, reversing the direction of the sigils so that the vision would run backwards through time. It worked. She saw the last 24 hours play back at high speed, like an old-fashioned video cassette on Rewind. Skimmers and trucks flickered past, moving backwards. Parked vehicles appeared at the curb, then vanished again. The sky was mostly obscured by concrete and steel, but Kate saw the ambient lighting grow dark, then bright again. People moved by too quickly to be seen, but Kate didn't worry about missing her subject. Mrs. Roberts's hair provided a focal point for the spell, so as soon as the woman appeared in the vision, it snapped back to normal speed, continuing its backwards action in real time. A large van backed into place in front of the apartment building. The sliding door of the van opened, and two black-hooded men emerged, carrying a small, elderly figure between them. The abductee had a black bag over her head. They carried the woman to the curb, removed the bag from her head, revealing her cat-like features. The woman's watering can sprang up from the ground and into her hand. The black-hooded men ran backwards into the van. The door slid shut again, and the van tore away from the curb in reverse, continuing down the road and vanishing into a nearby tunnel. The catmorph woman bent and held her watering can over the planter boxes. A stream of water leapt up from the leaves and flowers and streamed into the watering can. Kate stopped the vision, then broke the circle with her foot, releasing the magic. She sat back on her haunches and thought through what she had seen, playing it back in her eidetic memory. They pulled her right off the sidewalk, she said, half in disbelief. Right in the middle of the day, snatch and grab. The whole thing took less than twenty seconds. She stood, looked up at the tenement windows around them. Somebody must have seen it. Lyle wrung his hands and stared at the ground. Maybe not. It's, um, not healthy to spend a lot of time close to windows. Kate sighed and rubbed the bridge of her nose. The spell had brought back her headache. She wondered if she was still suffering the effects of her concussion last month. Right, she muttered. Not only were stray bullets a problem in many parts of the street, but seeing something that didn't concern you could make you just as dead. Did you see the license plate number? Lyle asked. Kate looked up at him. Shit. Yeah, I probably did. Hang on. She ran back through the images in her mind, calling up that rear view of the van just before it pulled up. Or, rather, pulled away. She focused her thoughts on the license plate, and the image crystallized in her mind's eye. 7SD, 5CN7. I have it, Kate said. Good thinking, Lyle. The rat man ducked his head. Thank you, ma'am. What do we do now? Now I use my contacts at the DMV to run the plates. It's probably a stolen van, or at least stolen plates, but it gives me a place to start looking. Okay, Lyle said. 
Um, Miss Kittridge, I don't know how much you usually charge, but I was wondering if... if we could work out some kind of payment plan. What? Oh, profit's sake, Lyle. Kate came up and put her hand on the little man's shoulder. You already paid for this back at the swoop race. I owed you one, and I always pay my debts. Lyle looked up at her, eyes wide. Really? You'll find Mrs. Roberts? Realism stopped Kate from making the promise she desperately wanted to make. She knew the odds weren't good. Most missing people stayed missing, at least if they'd been gone for more than a day or so. She told as much of the truth as she could bear to say. I'll do everything I can to figure out what happened to her. I'll follow the trail until I find her or it runs cold. That's the best I can offer. Lyle nodded. He covered her hand with his own and squeezed it. That's a lot. Thank you, ma'am. Dr. Morgan Drowling, MCPD, arrived at the morgue in the late afternoon. The sun still shone above the Dragon Mountains, but Morgan took the subway to work and rode the express lift directly from the station, so she avoided any risk of accidental immolation. For whatever faults the Metamore transit system may have had, it was at least somewhat friendly to vampires. She greeted the staff at Brightleaf General warmly as she passed through the hospital's reception area, then took the local lift down to sublevel 2, where the Forensic Investigation Division kept its Squad 2 offices. A twenty-something technician with blue scrubs and thick-rimmed glasses sat at the front desk, frowning at something on the computer screen. Hello, Leon, Morgan said. How's it looking today? Pretty quiet, the man said. We've got the results back from the entomologist on the Tallman case. Anything interesting? Leon didn't even look up from the screen. Nope. Bottleflies and head lice. Could have come from just about anywhere. It's in your email if you want to read it. Thank you. Anything else? Leon shrugged. Just a Jane Doe from Streetside. Lisa said she'd take care of it tomorrow morning. All right. Morgan started to head for her office, then paused. She contemplated the pile of busy work waiting in her inbox. Actually, no. I'll take the dough. That made Leon look up in surprise. Why? Because I haven't had my hands in a body for a week, Morgan said. I'm sick of dealing with, with supply audits and training forms. I need to do some science. Leon shrugged. Whatever you say, boss. The dough is in locker seven. Perfect. Thank you, Leon. Morgan dropped off her bag and coat in her office and changed into her scrubs. She pulled back her long, black hair and covered it with a bouffant cap, slipped a pair of booties over her hospital clogs, then washed her hands and forearms with antibacterial soap before putting on nitrile gloves. Having thus done everything reasonable to prevent accidental contamination of the body, she entered the examination room. The main exam room at the Squad 2 morgue had been in service for at least fifty years, and in some ways it showed its age. Rather than being broken into self-contained autopsy theaters with their own ventilation systems, the morgue used an open-floor plan, with several stainless steel tables and equipment carts that could be wheeled around as needed. 
They also had a set of movable curtain rods and stands that could be arranged to partition off different parts of the room. When combined with plastic sheeting, they could do an adequate job of preventing cross-contamination when several autopsies were going on simultaneously. The bodies were kept in a long wall of refrigerated lockers lining the back of the room. Morgan wheeled an exam table over to locker 7, opened the door, and pulled out the rack. The body was still in the bag it had been delivered in, with the toe tag attached to the zipper. Morgan switched on her voice recorder, which she kept on a lanyard around her neck, and examined the tag. Case number K-00-000142, she said. Found on May 18th, 2000, Precinct 10, Valley Central Borough. Lieutenant Morgan Drowling, M.D., is performing this examination. She unzipped the bag, lifted out the body, moved it easily to the exam table, one of the little advantages of being a vampire in her line of work, then rolled the table back to her preferred autopsy station in the center of the room. She adjusted the jointed neck of one of the overhead lights so that it was directly over the dead woman's chest. She walked slowly around the body, taking stock. The subject is an unidentified theriomorph female. The template species appears to be Felis domesticus. The fur has gray and white markings, herringbone tabby, with cream-colored fur covering the throat, chest, and abdomen. Put the age somewhere between 50 and 70 for now. A more precise estimate will depend on analysis of the bones. There was dried blood matting the fur around the throat, so she examined that area more closely, brushing back the fur to look at the skin beneath. There are two puncture wounds over the carotid artery, with a spacing of approximately three centimeters, which is consistent with vampiric exsanguination. She grabbed a pair of sterile swab kits from her equipment table. I'm collecting DNA evidence from the wounds. If this was a vampire attack... The Lightbringers can use the evidence to confirm a positive match to any suspects. Morgan began to examine the body in minute detail. She took more swabs from the woman's mouth and under her claws, in case she had tried to bite or scratch her attacker. She collected tissue samples from the woman as well, so that they could distinguish her DNA from that of her assailant. She trimmed off sections of the woman's fur with a sterile electric clipper blade saving the fur in zip-top evidence bags. The soil or microbes in the woman's fur might give clues to where she had been. It was likely that none of this evidence would be used, of course. The DNA samples would likely sit in storage in the ultra-cold freezer until they eventually had to be discarded to make room for new ones. But you could never tell which cases would be the important ones and Morgan always felt it was best to collect all the information you could while the body was fresh. With that in mind, she went back to take a closer look at the bite marks. A vampire's skull and jaw changed shape when it was in the grip of the beast, that instinctive, predatory alter ego that had been instilled in them by Mother Lilith. The spacing of the wounds was generally consistent with a vampire bite, but the exact pattern of the dentition would give clues as to whether the vampire was feral or killing under the direction of its human side. Morgan knew that the vampire syndicate liked to blame all fatal attacks on feral vamps, but Malcolm's organization was full of monsters who wore a human face. 
she would take great satisfaction in busting one of Malcolm's henchmen for going after a poor, defenseless old woman. She lowered her head to speak into the recorder. I'm clipping the hair around the puncture wounds to examine the dental patterns on the subject's neck. She was thorough, clipping everything from the base of the neck to just under the jaw. When she was done, she adjusted the lamp again and examined the skin under a magnifying glass. She frowned, puzzled. She looked back over the skin again, all around the neck, looking for the telltale impressions from the incisors, the bicuspids, and the vampire's shorter canines on the lower jaw. But there were none. That didn't make any sense. Morgan's human teeth always left some kind of a mark after a sharing, even if she was being exceptionally gentle. There just wasn't any other way to drive the fangs deep enough. What was more, a vampire would suck at the wound after biting, which created lasting bruises in the surrounding skin, essentially a hickey. Morgan could see no sign of that, either. And all of that was assuming the woman had been a willing sharing partner. If she had put up a struggle, the vamp would have had to bite down harder to hold on, and that would have caused significant lacerations all around the woman's throat. None of this makes any sense, she thought. Not unless... Upon closer examination of the neck, there is substantial evidence that the woman was not killed by a vampire. Morgan detailed the discrepancies she had just observed. My current working hypothesis is that the assailant faked the bite marks in order to make it appear that a vampire was responsible, possibly to avoid close scrutiny of the body. If so, the blood must have been removed from the body by another means. Morgan started shaving more of the woman's body, focusing on likely exit points for the blood. The Jane Doe's wrists and the insides of the elbows both showed signs of being restrained. There was chafing there, consistent with a rope or strap of some kind, but she found no sign that the arteries or veins there had been damaged. But on the inside of the woman's right leg, a tiny puncture mark told a different story. A catheter was inserted between the adductor longus and the rectus femoris, Morgan dictated. It appears to have remained in place for at least several hours, judging by the condition of the tissues around the insertion point. I believe the line was inserted directly into the femoral artery. That would certainly explain the exsanguination, at least. Once the catheter was in place, the heart's own pumping would do the work of draining the woman's body of blood. But why? As a vampire, Morgan's first instinct was that the use for blood was obvious. But a vampire who was willing to kill for blood wouldn't go through such an elaborate system to collect it, and certainly wouldn't create fake vampire bites as a diversion. No, this had the feeling of something else. Maybe it's just part of the diversion. It was possible that the woman had been killed for some unrelated reason, and the killer drained her blood solely to make it look like a vampire attack. If that were the case, then Morgan's examination might reveal nothing about the true motive for the crime. Morgan couldn't dismiss that possibility out of hand, but for now, she set it on the back burner. The killer had been deliberate, methodical, and more often than not, that indicated that the manner of the death was just as important as the victim, possibly more so. She looked closely at the insertion point again. It had been done cleanly, expertly. 
There were no stab marks in the tissue that would indicate failed attempts. Whoever had placed the catheter had done this before, many times. Such an act of precision had all the earmarks of a ritual. Which suggests two possibilities, if I'm right. Either we have a killer who collects blood for some fetishistic reason, or this is about magic. Morgan finished the rest of her external examination, looking for further clues to support or debunk her hypotheses. She found ligature marks around the woman's ankles that matched the ones on her wrists and elbows, which reinforced the idea that she had been restrained. There was no sign of prolonged starvation or dehydration, which suggested that either the woman had been given food and water by her captors, or that she had not been held for long. Her clothes were also not excessively dirty. They had some superficial soiling that suggested the woman had been kept in an unsanitary place, but the filth had not penetrated to her undergarments, and Morgan's vampire senses could still smell a reasonably fresh layer of deodorant on the woman's armpits. All of that supported the idea that the woman had been taken and killed quickly, rather than being held captive for a long time. If the woman had friends or family who were looking for her, there might not even be a missing persons report filed yet. Morgan made a few more notes into the recorder, then put the body back into storage. There was more that she could do for the autopsy, particularly by examining the internal organs, but all of that could wait. Ritual magic was well outside her expertise, and she did not want to spoil a potential source of arcane evidence by doing anything too invasive to the body. She needed to talk to a specialist, and that meant a conversation with her friend, Kate. First, though, Morgan had another line of inquiry to pursue. She scrubbed out of the exam room, returned to her office, and called up the reports on recent autopsies performed by Squad 2. A few minutes of review gave her a sinking feeling. She went back to the lockers, pulled out the bodies her subordinates had examined, and started going over them closely. Over the next hour, that feeling grew into an alarm bell inside her head. She went back to her office and looked up the most recent detective who had been working on one of the affected cases. She grabbed the phone and dialed his number. He picked up on the second ring. Detective Pirelli. Michael, it's Morgan, she said, her voice low and urgent. Drop whatever you're doing and come down here right away. I think we have a serial killer on our hands. And that's the end of Chapter 11. Come back next time for Chapter 12, when Morgan shows Michael what she's uncovered, and Callie takes Will to a place where he can do some good. V.S. Pritchett said, Writing enlarges the landscape of the mind. So, put on your gardening gloves and grab your pruning shears, and let's see what sort of landscaping work I've been up to lately. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 1,574 words this week, over the course of 2.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 630 words per hour. I wrote on 3 out of 7 days this week, and also did 4.5 hours of work on audio editing and recording, over 3 additional days. I did a little more work this week on Operation Ibex, and recorded two more author commentaries for the Patreon feed, 
though I didn't get a chance to edit them yet. The new lunchroom continues to be a good spot to work, but I had some long testing days this week, so I didn't get as much time to use it as I would have liked. I also played piano for my church's band this Sunday, so my time in the evenings had to go to music practice. After this week, things should ease up a little bit, though, so I'm looking forward to getting some more writing done in the next week. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.